you might find it hard series on the life of Joseph that we're calling the life of a dreamer, you might find it hard to believe that there is anything that Joseph uh, has not faced. If there's anything left for him to have to overcome to be able to get to the place where God's called him to. I mean, he has faced some incredible obstacles. And just to review the things that he has gone through, he, he had a horrible family history. I mean, his family's life before he was even born was a mess. And then as a child, he grew up in probably the most dysfunctional, blended family that you could ever imagine. He had two stepmothers that both hated him. Uh, treated him bad. He had 10 stepbrothers that treated him bad, and they were spread out in age from almost 30 years between the first and the last. And uh, they continued to disagree. Matter of fact, it got to the point that his stepbrothers ended up beating him, leaving him in a well. They wanted to kill him. One of the older brothers decided not to kill him, so they leave him in a well. Then they decide to sell him, so they sell him into slavery. So you talk about just take that and think of the mess that Joseph has been through. And then he is sold into slavery into a foreign country, into a culture that he knows nothing about. And he's sold into a house uh, where, where he knows no one, doesn't even speak the language. But over time, God blesses him and he grows to be put in charge of that house only to have the wife of the leader of that house, Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, uh, come on to him sexually and sexually harass him. And when he rejects her, then he gets accused of rape. He gets accused and lied about. And so Mr. Potiphar, when he comes home and finds out, he has Joseph thrown into prison. And so think of all of those things that he has had to overcome. What, what could possibly be left that he hadn't had to deal with? Because you see, uh, what's amazing through that whole story, through the last six weeks that we've studied this, is that no matter what he faced, no matter what he had to deal with, Joseph continued to stay faithful. We learned that when he was 16, 15 years old, God put a dream in his heart. God spoke into Joseph's heart that one day Joseph would be put in a place of leadership, maybe even a place where he would rule, where he would uh, have a chance to influence nations. And it was that belief in what God spoke to his heart that motivated him all through his life. No matter what he faced, he hung and clung on to that idea that God was in control. And he believed that if he ever stepped out of being faithful to what God had called him to, then he would never get to the place that God was leading him. And that's so true in our lives. And we've learned over these past six weeks that as God has spoken dreams into your heart, and each of us have dreams and hopes and anticipations and, and, and uh, looking forward to trying to be who God's called us to be, as God has called us to that place, when we take our eyes off of that, we begin to get distracted. That's why it's so amazing that we come to this distraction this morning. Because I think this distraction is more dangerous than any of the others. More dangerous than a dysfunctional family. Because some of you didn't have a dysfunctional family. It's more dangerous than blended families. Some of you didn't have that. You didn't experience that. You didn't have bad family history. Some of you had loving homes. And some of you had uh, perfect situations. Some of you had siblings that got along. And, and you didn't have to deal with disappointment and discouragement. Some of you have had everything turn out just like you wanted it, just like it was planned. Joseph had to deal with delays and being sidetracked. But what we're going to talk about this morning, the reason it's so dangerous is because everybody deals with it. Everybody is confronted with it. All of us in this room, at one time or another, have been disappointed by other people's actions. And how we respond to that is so dangerous that it can keep us from becoming who God's called us to be. It can sidetrack us. It can distract us. 
And so this morning, as we continue looking at Joseph's life, I want to look at how he overcame it and look at how you and I respond. When we left Joseph last, he was in prison. Potiphar had him thrown in prison. He didn't just go to uh, the local jail. He went to a filthy, nasty prison. But even in prison, God was blessing him. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 39, the end, Genesis chapter 40, the beginning, at least three times, it says, in the midst of prison, God was with him. And God blessed him, and he rose in prominence. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 40. We're going to read a little bit this morning. We left him two weeks ago. He was been in prison, been in prison about eight years. He's going to be in prison a total of 10 years, maybe a little longer. He's probably 20 when he gets to prison. We don't know really age. We know he was 16 or 17 when he got his dream. He was probably 17 when he was thrown into uh, the well, when his brothers abandoned him, when his brothers told his parents that he was dead, sold into slavery. A couple of years at Potiphar's house, we believe, and then he is put in prison. He's been in prison now for eight years. But while he's in prison... As God is blessing him, he gets put into a place of leadership. He begins to minister to other people, begins to reach out to people that are in prison, helping other prisoners deal with what they're going through. Joseph, if there was anybody that could help others, it was Joseph because of what he'd been through. So he's ministering, and in that role, he comes across two people. Two people that have been thrown in prison because of Pharaoh. They were from Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh was the leader of Egypt. He's now serving in Egypt in a prison in Egypt. And he meets these two guys. One is the cupbearer, which a cupbearer may seem strange to you, but really he was the taster. He was the one who would drink the cup before he handed it to Pharaoh to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And the other was a baker. He was the chief baker. He was the one who put and tested all of the meals before they came to Pharaoh's table. Well, they had fallen out of favor and got thrown in prison. And Joseph went to minister to them. And while he's ministering to them, both of them discuss that they can't sleep at night because they're having these bad dreams. And so they're having bad dreams, and Joseph says, well, listen, I I know something about dreams. God has given me some dreams in the past, so maybe with God's help, I can help interpret your dream." And so each of the people, the cupbearer, the taster tells him his dream, and the baker tells him his dream, and Joseph interprets them. And, and we learned two weeks ago, it turns out pretty good for the cupbearer, turns out really bad for the baker. The cupbearer, uh, he is told that you're going to get back out of prison, get put back in your place of position. The baker, he's told, listen, you're going to get uh, hung. Pharaoh's not going to forgive you. When you get out, he's going to hang you. And all Joseph asks in return is when he shares this interpretation, when he shares with them what's on his heart, he says, just do this for me. Remember me when you go to Pharaoh's court. When you get out of here, especially to the cupbearer, he said, remember me. Matter of fact, listen to his words. Look down at verse 12. And he's interpreting the dream here. He says, this is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, and this is when he's telling the dream, Pharaoh will lift up your head and he will restore you to position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand again, just as you did when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with him, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being in a dungeon. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, all I'm asking, I know I helped you and I've ministered to you while you've been in here. All I'm asking is that when you get back in Pharaoh's court, just mention me. I'm in prison unjustly. Do me this one favor. And everything works out. If you go down to verse 20, uh, look at what it says. Now on the third day, it was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officers, and he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker and the president of his officials. That means 
He restored them. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. And then this is our key verse, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. If you go down and look at chapter 41, verse 1, it says, He forgot him for two years. For two years, Joseph languishes in prison while the cupbearer forgets his promise to Joseph. Now, the Bible doesn't tell what Joseph was going through during this time, but you and I have been there. You put your hope in somebody else. You've had somebody else tell you that they were going to help you or that they were going to do something for you or that they were going to, to help in some way. And, and, and all of a sudden your hope gets, can you imagine, Joseph, that it all works out. The cupbearer and the baker, they're leaving and Joseph's thinking, I'm going to get out. For the first time in eight years, there is actually hope that I am getting out of this dungeon. I am getting out of this prison. He is going to remember me to Pharaoh. And he gets excited. And then that first day goes by and, and nothing happens. Maybe he gets a little discouraged. He thinks, no, he's going to remember me. He's going to keep his promise. Everything's going to work out. And that second day, it doesn't happen. Maybe he gets a little more discouraged. And by that third day, he begins to realize, maybe he's forgotten me. And as the days wind into months, wind into years, you can imagine what went through in his heart. Maybe anger, maybe disappointment, maybe discouragement, maybe despair. You see, that's the reason what I want to talk about this morning is so dangerous for all of us. Because it's something that, that comes not when we expect it. It comes out of left field. It comes from the place that we least expect it. It comes from people that we care about. It comes from people that we put our hope in. It comes from people that we trust. It comes from our family members. It comes from people that we love. And as I said earlier, I'm talking about dealing with disappointment in others around us. How do you deal when people let you down? How do you handle it? How do you respond when people who you have placed your trust in, who you have placed your hope in, only disappoint you maybe it's through their actions maybe it's through their inactions maybe it's through they said they would do something and they didn't do it maybe it's through their words maybe they even betrayed you see joseph placed his hope in this cupbearer only to be disappointed really if we had to speak today's language only to be shattered only to be rocked by the realization that someone else didn't stick up for their promises now, before we start casting stones at the cupbearer, because it's easy for us here so many years later to look at this story and read a story on a page and go, man, I can't believe he didn't keep his word. Before we start looking down on him, we need to remember that every one of us in this room has broken a promise. Every one of us in this room has not kept up with a commitment. If not to somebody around you, at least to God. We've all failed in our promises. And people fail in their promises to us. If there's one truth that I want you to understand this morning, it's that everyone in this world has someone disappoint them. It's a fact of life. People will always let you down, even those people that you love, even those people that you're close to. And some might even betray you. And it's not even an exception. It's the norm. We disappoint people, and people disappoint us. Why? Not because we're evil, but because we're humans. We make mistakes. We blow it. 
But sometimes we don't realize that the mistakes that we make have such huge consequences. Sometimes we don't realize that the little oversights that come and go in our lives have such huge consequences on other people's lives. We all struggle to keep our promise. We all have disappointed others. And all of us in this room have been disappointed by somebody we cared about. In the Old Testament, King David talks about it all the time. If there was ever somebody that we could relate to, it would be David. I mean, David, he was named king and his father-in-law who said to his face, I love you, behind his back was scheming to kill him. And he would go and try to kill David. He would go and try to, to hurt David. And then he would come to David and he would say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. I won't do it again. Have you ever had somebody that disappointed you do that? I'm so sorry, that'll never happen again. Trust me this time. And you place your trust and your hope in them again, only to be disappointed again. David's father-in-law, Saul, said, I won't ever do it again. And less than a month later, he's scheming to kill his son-in-law. Later on, after the Bathsheba incident, David's son, Absalom, turns his back on his dad, begins to lie about his dad to his dad's closest friends, and begins to scheme to take over his dad's kingdom. And some of David's closest friends, his friends that have been his friends for a long time, some of them for a lifetime, all of a sudden begin to turn their back on David. And David writes about it in the Psalms. Listen to what he says, Psalms 41. Even my close friends who I trusted, who I shared bread with, have lifted their heels against me. This is what he writes in Psalms 55, 12. If an enemy were insulting me, I can handle it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, one who I enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked in the throngs at the house of God who have abandoned me. He's saying, listen, if it was somebody out there that betrayed me, I could handle it. If it was somebody that, that I don't care and I don't know and they want to talk bad, I can handle it. But it's you, somebody I went to church with. Somebody who, who hugged me and somebody who cared about me. And all of a sudden now you've turned your back on me. All of a sudden now you've betrayed me. All of a sudden now you've let me down. He said, in that I can't handle it. Even Jesus and we talked about some of it in Easter last week. Jesus, the, the, the weekend of his death, the night he had such an incredible time with his disciples. You remember the story? He washes their feet and he gathers them and they eat the Last Supper and, and he shares with them what God is going to do. And we're not talking about Judas. I'm talking about the other guys. He knew Judas was going to betray him. But he takes the other guys, his best friends, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray on probably what is the hardest night of Jesus' life. He gets ready to pray and he looks at his best friends and says, listen, this is going to be hard for me. I'm going to be tempted and I'm going to struggle. Will you guys just gather around me and stay up and pray with me? The Bible says Jesus is pouring out his heart in prayer. The Bible says prayer of tears, blood was coming out. He was praying so intently. And he turned around to look at his best friends and all of them had fallen asleep. He said, can't you just stay awake? He wakes them up. He says, listen, this is hard. I need you. And begins to pray again. And it said a second time. He looks up and they've all fallen asleep again. He says, can't you even stay with me an hour? You see, all of us can relate to what it's like to have people disappoint us. But the danger... For us, is not that people will disappoint us. Because if I just shared with you, everyone is going to have someone disappoint you. That's not the danger. The danger comes 
from how we react or respond when it happens. What do we do? What do we say? How do we react? How do we respond when people hurt us? Because you see, it's in our response that determines whether or not we will continue to chase our dreams, whether or not we will continue to follow God. So how have you responded in the past? Before we look at what Joseph did, I want to give you some common responses that happen to most of us. Some common dangerous traps that we fall into when people hurt us or disappoint us. Some responses that get us off of the track that God's called us to. The first and probably the most obvious is when someone hurts us, we want to hurt them. We plot revenge. And that's just a natural feeling. When somebody disappoints us, when somebody talks behind our back, when somebody betrays us, we want to get them back. And so we start scheming, we start planning, we start working up how we are going to pay them back for the hurt that they've given us. But what happens in doing that is we get so wrapped up in that idea of revenge that we take our eyes off of being who God's called us to be. And as God is calling us to move this way, we have stopped here and we've focused everything on trying to hurt the person that's hurt us or get back at the person that has disappointed us. And we lose track of who we are supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing and where we're supposed to be going and it robs us of our peace and it becomes just a vicious cycle because what happens is we get them back and then they get us back. And we continue that cycle. If Joseph was going to plot revenge, where would he start? His brothers, his parents, the slave traders, Mrs. Potiphar, the prison guard. We recognize that we'll find out later that Joseph couldn't waste his time. The Bible says in Romans 12, 19, it is not your place to take revenge. Leave that to God. See, what God wants you to know, people will always reap what they sow. People who betray and lie and deceive and hurt and disappoint will always reap the consequences of their actions. You don't need to get in the way. You don't need to step in. God will take care of them and God will take care of you. But the moment that we step in the place of God and decide that we are going to be the ones that is going to, to pay them back, then we step out of the will of God. The second response, which sometimes happens to us, is we wallow in self-pity. Somebody hurts us, somebody disappoints us, and we all of a sudden start thinking, why me? Why does this always happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Poor, poor, pitiful me. And, and as we wallow in that self-pity, what happens? And it feels so good. I mean, let's be honest, doesn't it? It feels good to sit down sometimes and think the whole world is against me and nobody likes me and everybody is out to get me and, and poor, poor, pitiful me. The problem is once we start that mindset is all we begin to see in our lives are the bad things that happen. See, everything that happens, we can have 10 good things happen and one bad thing happen and always, oh, I can't believe this happened. Oh, this is going to devastate. Because we're not focused on the good. We're focused on the bad. We're focused on the disappointment. We're focused on people that have hurt us. And we fail to see all the things that God is doing in our life. And we also fail to see that there's people all around us that have it all a lot worse than we do. Because we're so focused on how bad we've got it. Do we really have it so bad? If everyone in your life turned against you, if everyone you know disappointed you, you still have Christ. 
you still have hope. You still have faith. I know it feels good. I know it feeds the flesh. But it takes our eyes off of God. It distorts our view of reality. The third dangerous consequence is we go into isolation mode. And this is, this is what happens to a lot of people. I know I've been there. It's some of the responses that I did younger in life. When people disappointed me, when people hurt us, when people offend us, when we experience pain, when people uh, go against us, we just check out. We avoid people. We avoid church. We avoid everyone. We just withdraw. Say, I'm not going to allow people to hurt me, so I'm getting away from people. And we shut people off emotionally. We say, I'm not going to let anybody get close because every time I let people get close, they disappoint me. Or every time I let people get close, they betray me or they hurt me. And so we shut them off. And in shutting them off, we do just the opposite of what we need for healing. You see, when people hurt you or betray you, what you need to do to be healed is to be around more people. To learn that not everybody is like that. There are people that are trustworthy. There are people that will put you before themselves. But we shut ourselves off and we become emotionally stunted. We decide that we're never going to let anybody get close. And in doing so, we become cynical. We begin to see nothing but the bad in other people. Nothing but the worst in other people. And it robs us of the opportunity to see how God can change people. Because, see, we all blow it. But the good news is, is we get a new chance tomorrow to change, to make it better. And if you shut people out, you never get to see the change. And what happens when you get stuck in that place is when people do begin to change, we don't believe they're changing because we're already cynical, right? Because we've seen how they've acted in the past. So we don't give them the benefit of the doubt. We never get to celebrate with their change because we're saying, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I don't believe that you can change anymore. No one is beyond change. No one is beyond seeing what God can do. You see, the problem is too many people place all of their hope and faith in another person. And we weren't created to put all of our hope and faith in someone else. The only person we were created to put all of our hope and faith in is God through Jesus Christ. And you see, what happens is, especially young people, I see college students and teenagers do that. They put all their hope and faith in a relationship. But only just be in this relationship. All of their hope and and when that relationship shatters, they are shattered. When that person disappoints them, they are shattered. See, you weren't created to put all your eggs in one basket, all of your hope and faith in that one person. Only Jesus Christ, because everyone in this room at some point will disappoint you. Let me let me just tell you, I will disappoint you. Your spouse will disappoint you. Your kids, your parents will disappoint you. And if all of your faith is in them, then you are setting yourself up to be shattered. Doesn't mean you don't trust them. Doesn't mean you don't love them. Doesn't mean you don't follow and and obey and and put hope in them. It means you just don't put all of your hope in them. Because the only one you can trust that will never disappoint you when you put your hope is Jesus Christ. The fourth response is we get angry and we blame God. God, how could you let this happen? God, why aren't you doing anything? God, why aren't you helping me? Just because God doesn't do what we want when we want doesn't mean he's not helping. I want you to think about this. What would have happened if Joseph would have gotten out of prison right then? We're going to learn later that two years 
down the road, Pharaoh begins to have dreams, and that's when the, the cupbearer, the taster, remembers. He says, wait a minute, Pharaoh's having dreams that he can't interpret. I remember a guy. What happens if the cupbearer gets out of prison two years before then and says, listen, Pharaoh, one of my buddies in prison is falsely in prison. Can you help get him out? And he gets him out. What, what happens to Joseph? He's unemployed in a foreign country in a place that he doesn't know anybody and doesn't speak the language. He never gets to the palace. See, sometimes we're sitting over here angry at God because people have hurt us or people have disappointed us or, or people hadn't done what we wanted them to do. And God in reality is saying, I'm using that to prepare you for where you're supposed to go. Stop looking around and look up. Probably the most dangerous response and probably the most common response when people disappoint us or people hurt is we get angry and allow that anger to turn to bitterness. See, that's probably the most dangerous. You see, bitterness is what happens when we don't deal with our anger. So when we let anger, and it's okay, listen, if somebody hurts you, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be disappointed. That's not a sin. The sin comes when we don't deal with those feelings. The sin comes when we let it root and fester inside of us. When we allow it to, to ruminate, when we bring it back up, when we won't let it go. Because you see, what that happens is it begins to root. Hebrews tells us that bitterness becomes like a, a growth. And its roots begin to sink deep. And once we allow anger or hurt to become bitterness, it's hard to get out. And bitterness, once it begins to take over, it spreads and takes over everything. See, so you could be bitter about a family member that hurts you and disappointed, and it's going to make you bitter about everything. You'll be bitter about people at work, you'll be bitter about people at church, and they didn't do anything to you. It's that bitterness from home that's spreading out, and it takes over. And it begins to control you. And the thing about bitterness is it not only controls you, it becomes who you are. Your character becomes bitter. You ever heard somebody describe someone as being bitter? Not they are bitter or they struggle with bitterness. They're bitter. Why? Because bitterness took root to a place that it became part of their character. And it will destroy your joy. It will destroy your worship. It will destroy your happiness. And it'll destroy your vision for following who God's called you to be. See, some of you have let bitterness root up over something that's happened. How do you know if you're bitter about it? Because if it's something that's happened in less than 24 hours or 36 hours, then it's in danger of becoming bitterness. Because you remember what Paul says? Don't let anger sleep for a night. Don't go to bed angry. Deal with it. Because if you let it sleep for a night, it all of a sudden begins to take root. And it all of a sudden begins to grow. And it all of a sudden becomes bitter. Listen, if you're still wrestling with an issue that happened when you were a teenager, there's bitterness there. If you're still wrestling to something your parent told you or said or disappointed with you 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, last month, it's bitterness beginning to take root. If someone in your life, in your past, said something or did something or didn't do something that you thought they should have or they told you they were going to and you're still wrestling with it, there's bitterness there. And bitterness, it corrupts everything. Some of the reason you can't worship, some of the reason you have no joy in your life is you've allowed bitterness to take over. 
And as much as Joseph had a good excuse for any of those responses, that's not how he responded. I mean, some of us don't have a reason to be bitter. We've been blessed beyond measure. Some of us don't have a reason to blame God. Some of us don't have a reason to withdraw and and, and all these other responses to throw pity parties. Joseph, I mean, think of what he's gone through, and he still wasn't bitter. Why? Because he had the proper response. He, first of all, never let what happened to him affect his faith in God. He never took his eyes off of the prize, worshiping and following and being faithful to God. The only way you can get through being hurt by someone that you love, hurt by someone that's close to you, is trusting God. So you can try the revenge, you can try the self-pity, you can try the anger, you can try... It's going to leave you empty. It's going to sidetrack you. It's going to distract you. Some of you, you are still sitting in a place of anger and bitterness for something that's happened years ago, and God has called you way beyond that. You can't move forward. The only way to move forward is to say, I believe that God is in control. Even when people disappointment, even when people hurt me. For two years, I believe Joseph sat in that prison cell thinking, God has always been faithful. He's never disappointed me. He's not going to now. And you see, it gave him strength. It gave him courage. It gave him a willingness to step forward and move forward. Some of you need to get beyond what's happened to you in the past and cling to God. I remember the story of Adonira Judson, who was a missionary in Burma, early missionary in Burma, one of the very first pioneers of taking the gospel to the Far East. They were hostile to Christianity, and over time, uh, the government cracked down on early Christians. And they burned down the mission house, and they killed many of the converts, and they scattered the rest of them, and they took Judson, and they put him in prison. And as they were taunting him, as they were trying to get him down, they said, listen, Judson, everything that you worked for is all gone. Where is your future now? And Judson's response was, my future is as bright as the promises of God. You see, Judson recognized that no matter how much people disappointed, no matter how much people discouraged him, God was always faithful. And if God promised, he will be faithful to do it. And if God is calling you to something, he will be faithful to complete the work that he has begun in you as long as you're faithful to him. I stand on that promise for this church, for my own life, for your life, that God will always be faithful. The second thing is he practiced forgiveness. We learned early on his parents, his brothers, people that he came in contact with, he forgave them. Why do we forgive? Not because it's the right thing to do. We forgive, the Bible says, because you've been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The hardest thing you can do when someone's hurt you, when someone's disappointed you, is to forgive them. And there's no magic pill. It doesn't happen by saying the words. I wish we could all stand up and I could say, you think of that person that's hurt you, that's disappointed you, and we're going to say, I forgive, and you could say, I forgive, and it would be over, but it doesn't happen that way. 
Because sometimes the deeper the hurt, the longer it takes to forgive. But you have to start the process. You have to start in your heart saying, I'm taking my hands off of it. I'm forgiving that person. And listen, forgiving someone doesn't mean you have to let them back in to hurt you again. So many times we think for, to forgive somebody means that i got to open myself back up and, and let them come back and disappoint me again and hurt me. No, it's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness means you put what they did in the past behind and you don't hold it against them anymore. doesn't mean you can't be wise. If someone is robbing from you, stealing from you, you don't forgive and then invite them back into the house. You lock the door. David said to his father-in-law, his father-in-law said, please forgive me. I didn't mean to kill you or try to kill you. David said, I forgive you, but I'm not living back in your house again. See, it doesn't mean that you have to let them hurt you or open yourself up to it. What it means is you start the process of taking your hands off of what they did and not allowing it to influence your life. Some of you need to start the process of forgiveness. It may mean that you have to give it to the Lord every day. It may mean that you've thought that thing was gone and it creeps up when you least expect it and you get angry or you get hurt again. It may mean in that moment saying, God, please take this. I forgive that person. It may mean doing it 20 times a day. It may mean practicing it in everything that you say and do. But you've got to come to a place of forgiveness because you will not move on as long as you don't forgive. He trusted God. He forgave. And then probably the greatest thing that we can see in Joseph's life, no matter what he faced, no matter what he dealt with, he moved forward and never looked back. He moved forward. He started in. One day after another, and two years later, he was in the perfect place for God to get him out of prison. See, for some of you, whoever it is that hurt you, whoever it is that disappointed you, whoever it is that betrayed you, it's time to move on. It's time to forgive. It's time to stop letting that be an anchor in your Christian life. It's time to stop letting that person steal your pride. I've heard it said that bitterness is like you swallowing poison and hoping that the other person dies. That's what it does. It's time for you to move on beyond it. That's what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, I forget what is behind, I press on. I move forward, I fix my eyes on what is ahead. Stop talking about it. Stop bringing it up. Stop ruminating over it. When someone else brings it up, because people love to bring up. Because when people are miserable, they like to make you miserable. And so if you share that someone has hurt you in the past... I promise you, just to the point when you get to where you're ready to let it go and it's out of your hands, someone around you is going to bring it up. Oh, I saw so-and-so. Don't you remember what they did to you? Man, it starts festering up again. Right? It starts coming. You've got to let it go. Take your hands off of it. Don't talk about it. Don't dwell on it. Don't contemplate it. Don't try to figure it out. Move forward with God. Fix your eyes on where God is calling you and trust that He's going to take care of it and go. Remember a story after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee is traveling through the South before he takes the position as 
school president at what became Washington and Lee. And he's on the outskirts of Richmond and is told in his biography, autobiography, that uh, tells a story of coming across a lady that had this beautiful antebellum home that had been pockmarked by artillery. And when Lee stopped in to see her, he knew the family, and she was lamenting all the destruction that had taken place to her home. And she brings him out to the front yard of this huge oak tree, and she begins to tell him how this oak tree had been a part of her family since they arrived in America. For 150 years, this oak tree had grown and all the memories, his family had been married in front of this oak tree and everything that had happened and she is weeping and crying and here is this oak tree and she begins to point out the branches that have been destroyed and the trunk that is knocked away due to artillery that happened during the war. And she looks to Lee and, and she's wanting sympathy, I think, or probably wanting him to at least understand how angry and bitter and hurt she is. And Lee, who had faced defeat who had seen the horrors of war like no one else looked at the woman and just calmly said you need to cut it down and move on cut it down because as long as it's here you're going to be whining and complaining move on see for some of you this morning it's time to cut it down move on it's time to let it go